Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to John chapter 17. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one not far from you with a green and brown cover that says the story on the front of it. You are welcome to use that. If you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to own that. We'd love that to be our gift. But in the meantime, turn to John chapter 17 as we continue our walk through John's Gospel. Um, And we are in the final chunk, if you will, of Jesus' high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer. So Jesus has been speaking to his disciples, delivering something of a farewell sermon. He's about to go to the cross. After, of course, his crucifixion, he'll be raised from the dead and spend about 40 days, not only with his immediate disciples, but appearing to many uh, uh, broader groups of disciples before he then returns to heaven. So he's been preparing his disciples for what's coming, that he's about to leave, that the world is going to hate them, that things are going to get hard. In fact, he's predicted Peter is going to deny him three times. He's told them that one of them is going to betray him. We know that to be Judas, of course. And he's promised them that the Holy Spirit would come. He would ask the Father, and the Father would send another helper. And in fact, we really saw Jesus in the verses we looked at last week actually asking the Father for that very thing praying to the Father that they would be one and that they would be protected and that they would be uh, holy and sanctified for him. And so when he says, I will ask the Father and he will send you a helper, I think that's exactly what he's doing and asking God, the Father, to send help for his people. And so chapter 17 is all this prayer of Jesus at the tail end of his kind of final sermon to them. And we've observed just the the kind of special privilege that it is to to even have these words recorded for us. That we get to listen in on the eternal Son of God speaking in direct and intimate union with His Father. And He's passed these words down to us that we might learn from Him. Both how to pray and more about who He is and who he intends for us to be as his people. So uh, we are going to be in verses 20 through 26 today. The first five verses of this prayer were really concerned with the glory of God. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And then he said to, to, you know, give me the glory again in your own presence that I had with you before the world existed. So in the front of Jesus' mind as he's about to go to the cross is the glory of God that God's character and beauty might be seen, and that Jesus himself, I believe, is anticipating the experience of the glory of heaven that is just around the corner for him, just on the other side of the suffering of the cross. In verses 6 through 19, he prayed for his immediate disciples. So the 11 faithful disciples, uh, obviously not including Judas, who had already uh, gone out to betray him. But he prayed for their protection and for their unity and for their holiness, that they would be set apart for God's purposes and that they would grow in those ways. And his concern today in verses 20 through 26 can be summed up in the word 
unity. I've already implied that. I talked about it to uh, boys and girls a little bit earlier. The word unity really sums up what he is after when he prays, not just for his immediate disciples, but he says, for all those who would believe through their word. And that includes us. That includes all Christians down through the ages. And he wants them to be one with one another. We'll read these verses in just a minute. But on the front end, let's talk about a few challenges that exist to unity. Unity is hard for at least three reasons. Number one, we're all sinners. Every stinking one of us is a sinner. Every human being you've ever met is a sinner. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It also tells us there is no one righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. That's the truth of human nature. It's broken. It's fallen. We're a mess. Every human being since Adam, thanks Adam, have, has lived in a fallen world, marred by fallen desires, a mistaken belief that we don't really need God, and an innate craving to be worshipped as God instead of reflecting the glory of our Creator. So that's challenge number one to unity. We're all sinners. Challenge number two, perhaps the more unique expression of our fallen humanity, is that as Americans, we are all committed individualists. We are committed individualists as Americans. From the day you were born, you were ingrained with the message that you should be independent and self-reliant, that your life should be about fulfilling whatever dream is in your head and your heart, whatever makes you happy, right? That's, we've even enshrined that in the founding documents of our nation, that the chief right of human beings is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, just whatever fills your boat floats your boat. You don't fill a boat. You float a boat. I mixed up my metaphors. Anyway, um, and in more recent years, that individualism even includes the right of each person to determine for himself or herself what is true, what is real, and who we even are. We just get to say whatever we think we are or want to be. That's the way that it goes here in the U.S. of A. So we're all sinners, as Americans, we're committed individualists, which works against unity at times. And the third challenge when we're talking about life in the church and unity is everyone's been hurt by the church, right? Everyone that's spent any time in church life has stories to tell about ways that they were mistreated or words that were spoken that were unkind or actions against them that were uncharitable or unfair. And many of us have bruises and maybe even scars on our hearts that we could share about. Words and actions on the part of other church members, maybe church leaders in our past. And we have these wounds that we carry around with us. So when you consider that we're all sinners and that as American sinners, we're also committed individualists. We're independent, self-reliant. We do our own thing, our own view of reality. And that we're all carrying around wounds at the hands of other Christians and even Christian leaders within the church. You got to ask the question, is unity in the church even possible? It's kind of a gut check question. Do you really think a church, let alone all Christians all over the world, could be united could be one. And how much does Jesus really care? 
about the unity of the church? Is it really a big deal? Or can we just, you know, like the American way, if I disagree, I'll just start my own religion, right? Or my own denomination, right? That's kind of how we do things here in America. Is that, is it okay just to do that? Or should we pursue a unity that contradicts and goes against all of our nature and all of our sort of fallen desires? Well, I think we'll find some answers to those questions in verses 20 through 26 of John 17. So I invite you to read along with me as I read to you these verses from the English Standard Version. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Does Jesus care about unity in his church? You bet. You bet. In this final public prayer, before he goes to the cross, within earshot of his disciples and by the Holy Spirit, inspired to be recorded for us down through the ages, we have these words expressing the heart of Jesus, that the people that believe in him would be one, that his church, his people would be one. Is he hopeful that it can be a reality? Yes. I think there's an incredible amount of, of hope that is not just wishful thinking, hope this comes about, but a confidence that God will accomplish his purposes through the church that he purchased with his own blood and so yes he cares yes he believes it can be a reality and so we ought to give our attention to what this can mean what this looks like so in Jesus words here we'll see three things what unity is like how unity is achieved and what unity accomplishes so we'll just take those things in turn number one what unity is like, or the, the nature of Christian unity. Look, so, so he speaks here of the nature of the oneness, the unity of the church, by pointing to his own union with and oneness with God the Father. I think by implication, you could include the Spirit of God here as well. So the, the unity that is experienced within the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is an analogy of, or a picture of, the kind of unity that he wants for his people. In verse 21, he prays, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. All right, so you've got Jesus, the Son, in the Father, the Father in the Son, the oneness that they share, and just as they are one, so would his disciples, his followers, his people be one in the same way, and that they would be in God, right? That they may be in us, Father, Son, that they may be in us. Verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave to me. Why? That they may be one. How? Even as we are one. So the oneness of the triune God is a picture of the oneness of the people of God. The church of Jesus Christ should be an expression of the unity of God himself. Verse 23 He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become what? Perfectly one. Complete. Not lacking. Not partly one. Not mostly one. But completely one. Now in this sin messed up world and in our sin messed up lives and hearts and relationships, we realize that the perfect expression of this unity won't be until we're on the other side of the grave and experiencing glory with Jesus in his presence. But we're moving in that direction, right? The Father, the Spirit, and the Son have this union of life and relationship and love and purpose and mind. And in the same way, we're supposed to embody that oneness as his church. You know, Jesus has been championing his oneness with the Father throughout John's gospel. I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, you've, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? His disciples ask him, How, we don't know the way where you're going, how will we get there? Well, I'm the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 1, 14 and verse 18 tells us that, that Jesus The only God has revealed to us God. So we see God, the Father, when we see Jesus because he reveals who he is. So there's there's this oneness, obviously, within the the triune God, but there's also a diversity of sorts within God, right? He's not all the same. It's not Father, Father, Father. It's Father, Son, Spirit. They have unique roles, unique roles functions unique relationships to one another and to the world you could say broadly as it relates to god in our salvation that the father planned our salvation the son accomplished or achieved our salvation in his life and death and resurrection and that the spirit applies salvation to the the heart and life of a christian i think we could we could show that biblically if we were going to do kind of a biblical theology of you know the trinity and salvation um, but so the, the Trinity, the triune God, is one and yet diverse and, and, and unique, right? And that's what Jesus points to. Just as we are one, just as I am in you and you are in me, that's the nature of the oneness of the people of God. So just as Jesus is in the Father and vice versa, so the church's nature is to be one. Jesus has already declared that this will be a reality. 
Back in John 10, verse 16, when he was speaking of himself as the good shepherd, saying, my sheep know my voice, and they hear me, and they follow me, he says, there will be one flock and one shepherd. He's already declared there's this one people of God, and I will be their shepherd. Back in John 11, verse 52, he said... um, John tells us, uh, Jesus did not say this of his own accord. Oh, this is speaking, um, excuse me, of the high priest sort of accidentally prophesying that, uh, that Jesus would die for the nation. It says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So that's the purpose of God from the beginning, is that he's got people that are his, and he's gathering them. Right? Those that the Father has given to the Son, the Son reveals the glory of God to them and he keeps them. They become his. They will be one. Like that is the purpose of God. John himself in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 to 4 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That sounds almost verbatim what Jesus has told them in his closing speech and even in this prayer in some ways. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, and all of that is for the, complete, the completion of our joy, that his joy might be in us. That's what Jesus has been saying to his disciples. So the unity of God, yet the diversity of, their, of each person's function or role or relationship is an expression of how his church should be. Kent Hughes says, Christ's prayer for unity does not mean we all should be the same, though many Christians mistakenly assume that. Too many think other believers should be just like them, carry the same Bible, read the same books, promote the same styles, educate their children in the same way, have the same likes and dislikes. That would be uniformity, not unity. We are not called to be Christian clones. In fact, the insistence that others be just like us is one of the most disunifying forces in the church of Jesus Christ. It engenders a judgmental inflexibility that hurls people away from the church with deadly force. One of the gospel's glories is that it hallows our individuality even while bringing us into unity. So this is not a forget your personality, set your gifting aside, and just like everybody look and dress and talk and be exactly the same. Sameness is not the goal of Jesus in the church. Oneness is the goal. Marriage is another analogy of that. Two people become one flesh. That doesn't mean all of the things that distinguish them from one another fade away, and suddenly we're just like one unified, yes, I will do this, right? We don't become robots and just like we just are the same person. We're still distinct people, but we operate as a unit. We share mission and goals and plans and desires and values, and we consider each other. That's how marriages work. That's what oneness is means and oneness in the church ought to be the same way just as god experiences this oneness among diversity within the relationship between father son and spirit so 
the church of Jesus Christ should experience diversity, distinctness of personality, of gifts, of desires, of roles and functions, but within a way where we're all pulling in the same direction. We all have the same values and purposes, and not our purposes, but God's purposes. Church, do you desire this kind of unity? I think it's a fair question. Do you desire it? As a church, do we really want to see God work in us in such a way that we would be one? Even while we're distinct and diverse, we're, we're one. And if you desire it, are you willing today to make whatever sacrifices, changes, or commitments necessary in order to build this kind of trinity-shaped unity in our fellowship. It takes all of those things. It takes sacrifices. It takes changes. It takes commitment because it won't be easy because of all the things I said at the beginning. We're sinners. We're individualists, and we've all been hurt. We carry all that around with us into every relationship and conversation and interaction we don't trust leaders. We don't trust each other. That's, that's all part of our sort of fallen, messed up package that we all carry around in our heart. And so we come up against this call of Jesus to the church to be one, just as God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit are one. And whoa, it's going to take work. It's going to take humility. It's going to take sacrifice. Perhaps I should also ask, do you believe it's possible? Do you believe it's possible for a church of broken sinners to live together in this kind of God-shaped, Jesus-glorifying way? And if it is possible, how will it happen? How does that kind of oneness among diversity come about? And that leads us to the next observation to make from Jesus' prayer. He's talked to us about the nature of Christian unity. Well, now he's going to tell us about the means of Christian unity. In other words, how it comes about. How does the church, how do Christians unite together in this Trinity-shaped way? The answer in a word, to use a theological phrase, is union with Christ. We are united to Jesus by faith, and our shared experience of Christ and his gifts unites us to one another. Look in verse 21. After he said, he's prayed that they would be one, just as I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, that they also may be in us. All right, so we're not just in each other. We're not just one with each other. We're, we're in the Son. We're in the Father, even. In us, in the, the, the Godhead, the triune God. We're in Him. Verse 23, he says, uh, backing up just a little in verse 22, he says, The glory you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one. How? Even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me. So Jesus in His people. There's this multidirectional union. We're in Christ, we're in the Father. The Son is in us. The Son and the Father are in each other. There's, there's tentacles, if you will, of, the, of relationship. 
where the Father and the Son relate to each other and to us, and we relate to them and with one another in this, this union way. We are united to Christ. If the people of God are united to Christ through faith in him, where what is Jesus's becomes ours, where what he experiences we experience, where his resources are our resources, his life is our life, like Galatians 2 says, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Like it's not even us doing the living anymore. It's we're so in Christ that he lives through us. When there's disunity in the church, it's a sign that we're not living into our connectedness to Jesus. We're not embracing, or maybe we don't even really have. We should ask ourselves that question. Am I really in Christ? Am I really in the faith? If we are in the faith, maybe we're just not taking advantage of the resources that he's made available to us in himself. Remember back in, a little bit earlier in his speech to the disciples in John 15, he painted the picture of a grapevine as an analogy of his relationship to us. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you want to live, if you want to have this vital connection, you've got to be a part of that vine, a branch that's connected to the vine of Jesus Christ. And in that way, you'll bear fruit. If you're not connected to the vine, you're not going to bear fruit. That's, the, that's the, the converse of that. In order to be fruitful, we've got to be connected to Christ. We've got to believe in him. We've got to con- stay with him. We've got to abide in him. And so this analogy of the grapevine with his branches is a picture of our union with Christ as believers. Our faith connects us to him as the source of our life and the power for our growth and godliness. If we're not connected to him in this way, We won't bear fruit. It's really that simple. So in the context of the church's unity, the oneness that we should experience, that God calls us to experience in the church, if we're not connected to Jesus as divine, even as individual Christians within the church, if we're not connected to Jesus as divine, as the source of our spiritual life and growth, we will not grow in unity as a church. It's that simple. In fact, we will splinter and divide and drift toward entropy and chaos. That's that's where sin leads if we just let it go. And if we don't stay connected to the vine of Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes has another helpful uh, picture here uh, that you may have heard before. Kind of the analogy of an inverted cone. So if you imagine it like this. And at the top of the cone is God. And at the bottom corners of the cone are Christians. So as uh, we grow toward God, we also grow toward one another, don't we? We get closer to each other as we individually draw nearer to God. So side-to-side relationships with people in the church get closer and better and more godly as we each pursue godliness and grow toward God. And that, I think, can also function as kind of a, a barometer, a test, if you will, of how we're doing with unity, how we're doing with our relationship with God. So it, when there's disunity, discontentment, bickering, selfishness, that kind of thing, kind of running rampant among a church body, it's a reflection of our distance from God. Right? We tend to think, 
we're splintered and divided and we don't have unity because they're not doing things the way that I know it should be done. That's kind of how we think, right? If they would all get on my page and just do things the way I want, there wouldn't be a problem. But if everyone in the room is thinking that, how likely are we to make any progress, right? We're doing this, not this. So if that's what's going on in our relationships and our church life together, where it's just like, but I want to do this. No, and I want to lead that. No, you want to start this. And no, how come he does it that way? Like, if that's what's going on, it's a reflection, not that church is just doing things wrong necessarily. It's a reflection of we're not really growing toward God. So we need to take some individual responsibility to be pursuing God. And as we grow toward God, we'll come closer together. And maybe some of the things we cling to and hold on to and say, no, this is really important to me. We, you know, for the sake of love, for the sake of unity, I can let that go. I can soften. I can loosen my grip on that. I think the, this kind of chaos, if you will, is illustrated by a little Facebook survey I put out this week. I never do this. I see other pastors like crowdsource their sermon stuff sometimes. Like, hey, just wondering what, if you have any thoughts on this passage, you know. Um, and so I just thought, I wonder what kind of responses I get if I said. So I, I put a little uh, Facebook post on Thursday, I think, that said simply, Christians, what do you think are the biggest obstacles to unity in a local church? That was the question. I expected maybe a couple of things. And I got 90 comments on that. I think one of them, maybe two of them were mine. One was a clarification of what I was trying to get at, and one was a joke in response to somebody saying that the source of division among the church was pineapple on pizza, which I totally agree with. No, um, anyway. So, like, 88 comments, all right, that weren't me. Um, and I was kind of shocked by the, the, not just the breadth of people that responded, but the diversity of opinion about what the problem is in church unity and the passion expressed in the sharing of these opinions. So I've got 88 people commenting, each with not just a thought about why a church might be disunited, divided, but with strong, passionate opinions about what churches do wrong. And I kind of went, I think this might be a picture of the problem in some ways, right? We all have our own idea about what a church should be and how they should lead it and what it should do and the kinds of ministries a church should offer and what the guy over there should be doing and saying and how they should relate to me and how everybody should listen to my ideas. We all have, I got them too. I'm a pastor for Pete's sake. I have ideas about how a church should operate, okay? I'm not without opinions in this area. But we all have those opinions, and when we all bring those opinions into the same room and go, no, do this my way, no, do this my way, do this my way, what happens? Chaos, disunity, division. It doesn't grow us toward God. It, it, it separates us from him. So what do you do with all that? What do you do with the multiplicity of opinions and passions and beliefs and assumptions that we make about other people? I mean, answers in this Facebook thing range from churches being too political, to churches just not loving each other, to uh, churches losing sight of their mission and becoming inward focused. There's like all kinds of things. And there's plenty of validity in most, if not all, of the answers that were on there. But we're all like harping on different things. We all have our, this is the thing, the bone we're going to pick with the church. And I think we get a pretty good answer to how we ought to respond to that 
in Romans 12.10, which tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. An old translation says to prefer one another. I like that phrase, to prefer one another. We usually prefer ourselves. We prefer our own way. We prefer our own view, our own value, our own opinion. If I were the pastor of this church, this is how I would do things, right? I've been there. I've been a part of churches where I wasn't the pastor, and I had thoughts like that. Boy, if I was in charge, this would look a whole lot different. I'm just saying, it's not bad to form convictions and beliefs based on God's word, but there's some pride wrapped up in that, in my own life too. So maybe give preference to somebody else. I'm going to let you win this argument. I'm going to let this decision go your way. I'm going to soften my stance on something that's not, you know, gospel related and, and let this go a different direction. Jamie Dunlop in his book, The Compelling Community, says, our churches must understand that Christians are spiritual providers, not consumers. That's a really important distinction. We're providers, not consumers. As Americans, we approach church and everything as consumers. What's in it for me, right? We must understand that Christians are spiritual providers, not consumers. The New Testament assumes that Christians ask, how can I serve, rather than what's in it for me? All Christians are to hold each other accountable. All Christians are to encourage each other in faith. And all Christians are to love deeply and sacrificially. Spiritual consumers commit to a congregation to the extent that commitment benefits them. Spiritual providers commit because they've already, because of the benefit they've already received in Christ. I've already been given everything that I need in Jesus Christ. How can I serve? How can I bring the grace of the gospel to bear on relationships in this church? How can I serve the ministry and mission and goal of the church corporately with my gifts and my time and my money and my relationships and my words? That's a spiritual provider and not a spiritual consumer. Not to belabor the point, but I think we get another really good biblical picture of this in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I think it's a really good little description of unity that Jesus is talking about. Just as the Father and Son and Spirit are one, so we ought to be one even among the diversity of the church. Have the same mind, the same love, full accord. Do nothing from selfish ambition, like how can I get a leg up? How can I climb the ladder within the church and be recognized for my gifts and my strengths, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us this beautiful, powerful picture of Jesus as the ultimate expression of that humility. Who, though he existed as God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? For us. 
Why? So that we might be one. That's how important the unity of the church is to Jesus. He died for it. He bled for it. He left heaven and became a human being forever for it. So, how does Christian unity come about? It comes about by Christians abiding in the vine, being united to Christ and growing toward him. And if we're all doing that, we're growing toward one another as well. So union with Christ, being in Christ, in the Father, having Christ in us is the the means of Christian unity coming about. And it's not an overnight event. It's a lifelong process, right? It takes years, as many years as we've got for that to, to grow and to cultivate. So why is this so important? Why does it matter so much to Jesus that the unity of the church ought to be this high value and included in such a a significant way in this prayer and that Jesus would die, give up his own place in heaven and the glory and worship of angels and lower himself for the purpose of purchasing and uniting the people of God? Why, Why is it so important, rooted in our union with God in Christ, counting others as more significant to our than ourselves. Why is it of such concern to Jesus? Well, that brings us to the final point to observe from these verses, which is the goal, if you will, of Christian unity. Why? Why Christian unity? Why is it so important? And the answer we get from these verses is that the world may know Jesus. The unity of the church is important because it's how the world comes to know Jesus. You might think that sounds like an overstatement. But I think Jesus is guilty of this overstatement if, if in fact, it is an overstatement because this is what he says. In verse 21, he's praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that, one of the most important phrases you'll ever read in the Bible, so that, this is, purpose this is goal this is mission this is what god's after so that the world may believe that you have sent me the oneness of the people of god has the result the effect of the world believing that jesus was sent from god he repeats himself down in verse 23 I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. That is, loved the church, loved the people of God, even as you loved me. Which, by the way, take heart, be encouraged. God loves you the same way that he loves his son. The Jesus of whom we read at his baptism, the father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's the manner with which he loves you as his adopted sons and daughters. It's amazing. The purpose of this union, this unity, is so that the world will know that God sent Jesus and that God loved his people what's at stake in the unity or disunity of the church 
is the credibility of the church's witness. If we're going to go out into the world and say, Jesus saves sinners, Jesus loves you, Jesus makes your life new, Jesus transforms you, and then somebody comes in and we are a tangled, broken mess of opinions and pride and competing, what kind of witness is that about who Jesus is and the salvation that he offers? People go, I don't want any part of that mess, right? Our credibility is shot if that's the kind of testimony that we have. In other words, if the church fails to display the glory of Jesus by its loving, selfless, harmonious life in union with Christ and in unity with one another, the world will not believe in Jesus and be saved from their sin. Jesus says it that plainly. Jesus said, just a few verses earlier, this is eternal life, knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Right? That's how he defines what life is, knowing God. It's also the means of how do you get eternal life, is knowing God in Christ. Then Jesus said, the world comes to know him through the church's unified display of his glory to the world. So the implication is, if the church doesn't display the glory of Jesus through its unity and love, the world won't know Jesus, and therefore they won't receive eternal life. Listen, I know this all exists in the mind and purposes of God and his people are his people and they will be his people and he will gather the sheep that are scattered. Like, he's gonna get his way. But he hasn't just planned the ends, he's also planned the means. And the means is Christian unity and love. Remember what he said to them earlier? By this, the world will know you are my disciples. Not that you love them, but the love you have for one another. Unity and love within the church is how the glory of Jesus is displayed which is why the church is God's evangelism strategy for the world. That's not some splashy program or some crafty way of explaining the gospel. All those things can be helpful, not against different methods of presenting the gospel, but the program, if you will, for evangelizing the world is the church. It's Christians bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, united to him and united to each other through their shared experience of God's grace, living out that grace in community and union and love and selflessness and preferring of one another in their life together. And that displays to a watching world the glory of Jesus Christ. Thomas Manton said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. We go, I don't want any part of that. If that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want it. You ever talk to anybody that says things like that? I've heard it. It's not a theory. So stated positively, like I don't just want to be ominous. If you don't do this, they won't be saved, right? Stated positively, the church's united front is an evangelistic appeal to the world. There is enormous potential for a unified church to leave a Jesus-shaped mark on the world around it. That's why we're called Imprint Community Church. We want to leave a Jesus-shaped mark on the community here where we are located. The way that we do that is by living in unity with one another, living out the salvation that God has given to us through faith in Jesus. What greater testimony to the truth and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ could there possibly be in this world than a congregation full of messed up, goofy sinners who love one another, forgive 
one another, honor one another, serve one another, teach one another, encourage one another, spend time with one another because of their union with Jesus Christ by faith. There isn't a greater testimony to Christ than that. We share Christ by our words and by our lives together as a church. So this is remarkable to think about, but we have the opportunity to be the answer to Jesus' prayer. When we pray, we hope for an answer. We expect we might see God move in some way. Jesus is praying to his Father, and I know that he is confident that the Father is going to accomplish his purposes. What's he asking here? Father, I ask that they, all who believe in me, might be one so that the world might know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. He asked God the Father to cultivate oneness among his people to show off the glory of God to a watching world. And so the question comes to us as his people, as Imprint Community Church, will we be an answer to his prayer or not? Will he find an imprint people that are willing to lower themselves, prefer one another out of their love for Jesus, and so display the glory of Jesus to the world around us, that the sheep that are scattered might be gathered into one. Let's pray.